<clears throat> in a three, in a two, in a one. Hi, this is Ben Peacock. I'm a leader and diehard supporter in El Matador, and I'm the third degree Discord user known as Eric, doomed to be forever orange. Third Degree the Podcast is brought to you by Soccer90, your source for FC Dallas, U.S. national team, and international club gear. Check out the new arrivals dropping daily. Gear from leagues around the world. Fresh Serie A, Premier League, Bundesliga, and of course, MLS and FC Dallas club merch available now. Remember, third degree listeners get 20% off at Soccer90.com with promo code third degree. Some exclusions may apply. Well, hello there, FC Dallas Curious fan. Welcome to another episode of Third Degree, the podcast. Number, please, sir? I believe it's 159. Hi, it is me, Peter. And helping out today are my two helpers in soccer talking. First off, Dan Crook. Howdy, Dan. Howdy, Peter. You're getting better, Did I get bud. it right that time? Yeah, okay, you're doing cool. better. You're getting there, man. Just a few more years, you'll be fully Texan. Uh, and, of That's course, fine. your hero, my hero, everybody's hero, editor-founder of ThirdDegree.net, Buzz Carrick. Come in, Buzz. Hello, Peter. How are you on this fine, fine Thursday evening? I am uh, I'm good. I know we need to get this done because if you think Buzz is nutso about the MLS draft, <laughs> oh, boy. You have no idea how absolutely insane he is about the NFL draft, which starts in about uh, a little over an hour. So we gotta we gotta yeah. book it and get this thing over with because Buzz has got better things to do. Well, the NFL draft has value, and the MLS draft does not. So yeah, well, fair enough. Yeah. Right, I get it. Uh, I'm gonna start with we're gonna talk about the amazing win at Toyota Stadium last Saturday in the Texas Derby between Dallas and Houston. I'm gonna start by reading a line from Matt Doyle's review of that game on MLSsoccer.com. The last line, which I think all of us can understand and appreciate, reads as the following. It got Dallas a win, which is huge. Nonetheless, I doubt Estevez is too thrilled about how his team has played the past couple of weeks. Buzz, I think Matt's hit it right on the head. Yeah, for the most part. Although, when I talked to him about it, he certainly um, sold up the idea that winning is important <laughs> and that they were pretty happy with the result, obviously. Um, you know, I, I think that, that the club would be happy with that aspect. Their ability to get a result is important, you know, but we always talk about, too, that you have to analyze the game in terms of overall. And obviously the last few have not been colossally phenomenal, beautiful, you know, play people off the park kind of wins. But, you know, wins a win. So you take that part and go. Dan, you wrote up the review of this game. Uh, would you like to summarize or give the highlights or your overall review of the match uh, it's a satisfying win right the one that you don't play well in you get out outplayed by your uh, your arch rivals and you still come away with the points uh you know the, the dallas started well houston maybe taking a note out of, of uh, new york and a few teams books going into that kind of more high press moving out there uh 4 into a 4 4 1 1 
absolutely destroyed Dallas. Uh, Dallas had nothing. I think the one that kind of stood out for me as I was looking over the halftime stats and everything, and uh, we always talk about Edwin Cerillo and his ability to get the ball forward uh, leading the team, and he had no passes into the final third. I think he only finished with one by the end of it, hmm. uh, which, you know, just, just uh, yeah, just an absolute crazy... Uh, a crazy number for for him personally. Uh, I I absolutely loved the use of of substitutes. Uh, Nico Estevez I thought played it brilliantly, bringing on Franco Hara, a guy who, you know, we don't think of him as like a ball of energy or anything, but he's a guy who can get fired up pretty easily. We uh, we saw that against uh, Houston last year when he was kind of getting kicked about in preseason, and then he brought that into the into the regular season again uh kind of just knew you know kind of knows his way around a, a derby a classico whatever you want to call it um and then the the i guess the master change in the 84th minute that that triple substitution that brought on faku and uh and siki and sebeling uh obviously you know siki is a guy who is a ball of energy if you uh, if you're chasing the game late on he's definitely someone you want to harass defenders but uh i liked that we got to see uh you know we think of uh, faku as a guy who's just just a defensive guy someone who you just put on the field to stop things but uh it's kind of funny watching watching him get the game winner and really attacking the uh particularly the six yard box in those last few minutes those are there's so many things that you brought up that I want to touch on, but I want to kind of go back to the beginning, Buzz, because in my notes of the game, uh, I have a bunch of question marks at the top of my notes, and it's like question mark formation, question marks tactics, packs pressing high. Uh, is Houston playing with three or four in the back? Uh, this was the weirdest tactical game I've seen in a while, and I never could quite get a grasp on what either coach was doing. Yeah, Houston, up until their Open Cup game, has played a 4-3-3. Um, and then the Open Cup game, they tried this 4-4-1-1 look. It, that's the only reason that I recognized it was because I watched, in order to get ready for this game, I watched their Open Cup game. Uh, and Darwin was definitely playing high and up off the striker, and their wings were definitely sitting back. What normally are their wings. Um, Kogo Karaskia in that formation was phenomenal because he had to let he didn't have to go as wide as he usually does, and he was able to just patrol the middle of the field. And, he, and when he has Matisse Vera in there, who was an aggressive tackler, those two guys just clogged the middle up and Coco was phenomenal. And I thought played outplayed the entire Dallas midfield. And I think because Darwin was so high, I think this contributed to Edwin's problem was because Darwin was so high, Edwin had to sit back deeper than normal, more like last year. In fact, remember that I wrote that thing earlier this year about how good he was playing higher up the field. I think he had to shift back because of uh, Quintero. And part of why the game changed is because Quintero had to go out at halftime, so the Houston had to adjust then. Um, Dallas was in a really weird shape. A lot of teams, as you say, have figured out that to high-press Dallas and make it difficult for them to get out or even mid-press them, just press them in general when their defense has the ball and they're trying to come forward. So that's a work in progress. They continue to work on that in training. Um, so b because Houston played a different formation than they have played other than the Open Cup, which seemed like a test or a different group of guys, so you didn't put much stock in that. So I think Dallas, in a way, was expecting them to be in their 4-3-3, and they weren't. And they did not adjust well to that tactic in the first half. And I think 
late in the first half, I looked at the possession and Dallas had 44% possession. So to get just absolutely throttled in terms of having the ball when you're a team that likes to have the ball at home uh, was really telling. And, and then, of course, the second half that changed completely. By the end of the game, they had more possession than Dallas did. Not by a remarkable amount, but you know they caught up in the second half and then went slightly ahead. So it definitely was a game of two halves, and it definitely was a. The first half was really, really weird. It it was almost like Dallas was playing like they played on the road. They were playing like they played in New York, uh, and that was really weird. And it, it and when I talked to coach about it today, he actually said that he actually emphasized a little bit that um, some of their defensive issues were were some of them just related to tenacity and energy and effort and just not coming out ready for like a. He didn't quite say this. I'm paraphrasing. You know, the idea is maybe they didn't quite come out ready for the intensity of a derby. Whereas, you know, he didn't express it that way, but that's the way I took it um, when he talked about, you know, just energy and effort being a little bit of missing in the first half. I found something interesting that he said after the game. Uh, he said, you know, they they'd identified the changes they needed to make in the first half, but then they waited. They wanted to pick the right moments. Uh, I mean, for that midfield change you were waiting a very long time for something that you've kind of recognized in the first half and you've kind of wanted to just see how it evolves i i do find it interesting dan that this coach definitely has a it seems to me like a uh kill the game sort of mentality in a lot of ways for the first i don't know 60 minutes i would particularly see this on the road where he wants to stifle the other team as much as he can and then go for it late and get a goal. Uh, and that's part of what I mean about this. It looked like it was a road mentality at home where they tr- it seemed like they were basically trying to stifle Houston for most of the first half and and then made changes in, in the second half, not even, not even in halftime, but like waited to make those changes. We're perfectly happy to have the game be stagnant in a lot of ways. You know, Martin Paz only had one save again. So this is this was back to the home form we've seen where you don't have to make a lot of great saves and the other team doesn't really have any good opportunities. Despite the fact that they had more of the ball, they didn't really have a lot of great things going for the most part in terms of attacking opportunities. So I think, I think we're learning that coach Estevez and I think what he said to you in that quote, Dan is, is that he's more than happy to have the game shorten itself in the sense of not having a lot of square opportunities either way until they're ready to go for it and turn it on, which is kind of an interesting, I don't think I've ever seen a coach coach that way. You know, and, and I don't know that he would say flat out whether that's true. I definitely think he would agree that they try to stifle the other team's opportunities as much as they can. I mean, obviously, the other team not scoring is a good way to get results, as we're seeing this year. Yeah, I, you know, I watch uh, the I mean, going back to the Chicago game and then even the win over Colorado, but definitely the, the road trip to New York and now uh, this result uh, against Houston. There are stretches of time where I begin to wonder, I'm trying to figure out, is Nico Estevez getting out coached or is he some sort of like mad genius that has figured out this? like rope-a-dope thing that I, I, that's the best analogy I can make uh, and then suddenly makes some changes or does something either in terms of substitutions or tactical changes that allows Dallas to kind of like scramble for the last 10 minutes and pull out wins and I, I can't figure out if I like that or not and again going back to the original question I can't tell if he's getting out coached or he's just some sort of mad genius no I think they're doing it on purpose you know a lot of the talk this year was about um the, the fixing this defensive issue from last year. Like Dan Hunt was adamant about 
last year being one of the worst teams in the league and goals allowed was not going to happen again. And remember when they fired Lucci, it was about, we think if we fix the defense, this team's fine. So I think in a lot of ways, there was a mandate from Coach Steves, and he's particularly specifically mentioned that they started the year working on the defense. That's the number one focus for like the first four or five weeks uh, of the season even. And then they've begun to try and build more creative offense on top of that. Um, and I definitely think just, you can just watch the games and tell that that's what's happening, that they're making sure that the game is staying low scoring and they're basically trying to stifle the opposition first and then they try and go for things. So I think it's all part of a calculated plan. It's too obvious that when the subs come in, how effective they are, that they definitely are targeting something specific with those subs. They're not just happening randomly. You know, they're coming in in different positions, even and they're different people, even and almost every time the subs have been very effective. So I think that speaks to the fact that it's on, on purpose. Over back on the MLS soccer site, uh, earlier this week, they posted an article talking about listing all the chance creators, people making the most dangerous moments in the league, and they break it down by chances created, Sista leaders, big chances, uh, open play chances, and you go through that list, and the one thing that if you're a Dallas fan, you'll note is that there's not a single player from this club listed in these top five or six of any of these categories. And I and and I would say this continues to be my biggest concern is this, is that Nico's system just doesn't seem to be really big on creating chances. I think that's true. I definitely think that's true. I, I, I'm trying to think in my head whether, you know, when I watch him play, if I feel like you know, they're, they're like I said, I think all along they've been playing for defense. You know, they're playing to limit opportunities, you know, and, and, and there certainly have been games where Dallas has taken real advantage of their shooting efficiency and scoring efficiency. I think a lot of the opportunities they've been getting come through patience. Like I talked to him um, yesterday about the idea of how they are happy to have the ball and keep it away from the other team to dictate the pace of the game and to alter the flow of the game and not let you get going. So not everything they're doing with the ball is always about trying to score with it. Sometimes it's about game management, you know, and Jesus is a pretty efficient scorer when he gets the right opportunities. And I think, you know, that they're, they're left with guys. They're not, they're not firing balls from long range. You know, they're getting a lot of balls where they're working them in the box and getting a good position. So it's not going to be a high volume shooting team. I think it's a very different team than, We've seen before, you know, we haven't seen any of these like 20 shot games. We've seen like 12, 13, that kind of thing. So it's, mm -hmm. it's definitely different than the team before. We're still getting to learn this team and this coach and what, and it sure seems like there's this trend of this is just how it's going to be. I mean, it's not sexy necessarily and, and like super enjoyable, but these coming back and winning is a lot of fun. So it's hard. It's hard to complain. All right. But I do want to take a minute to have a conversation here on the pod that has been discussed a lot in the Discord. I've seen it mentioned a lot of places in other social media outlets, both locally and on national level, which is uh, th this perception that Paxton Pomacall has fallen off and isn't having necessarily the season everybody hoped he was going to have. Um, he got subbed out for Hara in this particular game. And and I just kind of want to, you know, to me, a lot of what's happening is uh, a byproduct of Nico's system, and less about and 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 Paxton playing in a in a way that he's being told to play that doesn't allow him to do the things that we all fell in love with several years ago. Plus, forget the fact that he's also three years older at this point. Uh, so, Buzz, can you tell us is Paxton having a good season, a bad season, a mediocre season, or is this just a byproduct of the new coach? Uh, he's having a pretty good season statistically. 
Um, I think that a lot of us have these expectations of Paxton from when he was playing further up the field where he was getting into the box all the times and making these dynamic plays. I do worry that there's a specific little part of his game that I have not seen come back yet. I also think in this particular game that he was looking a little burnt out and flat. Um, and I think it's not a surprise that he was subbed early. They continue to really aggressively manage his minutes and training. Obviously Thomas being back will help that. I hope. Um, but specific to this game in particular, uh, coach told me that there was, there was a particular game plan with Alan Velasco in this game where they wanted him to give him freedom to attack both from the outside and from the middle. So he and Paxton, and I think Dan even referenced it one time during the game, he and Paxton were doing a whole lot of swapping. Basically when Velasco would come inside underneath, Paxton would drift wide and high. It's not quite a straight wing swap or not a wing swap. Excuse me. It wasn't quite a straight positional swap. It was more like a space coverage spot swap, if that makes any sense to you. So it was taking Paxton for a lot of this game. It was taking Paxton outside of the middle. It was taking him out to the side rather than up through the middle channel where he's most effective this season. So it's, it's hard to really give Paxton like a, like he's not like a team MVP level player right now. He is statistically having a good year. It's just not, what we thought he would be at this point. It's not what we thought he would be a couple of years ago. And part of it, of course, is that he's now playing as this deeper eight and not playing high as a more tennis like guy as we had seen him do before. Some. I'm just going to say that was kind of an ambivalent answer to it's, it's okay. And that's kind of really how I feel about his whole season. Dan, how much of what maybe people perceive as uh, Paxton falling off is actually just the reality that Brandon and Daniel uh, uh, are having really, really good and improved seasons from their prior years? I mean, it's definitely part of that. I think uh, in some ways people just have to also be realistic. Yeah, where we talked about Paxton having that, uh, that surgery and the two-year recovery, we're in year two. He's not he's not himself yet last year was get fit this year is find himself maybe he hasn't fully found himself yet but we're eight games into the season but um yeah uh brandon savania and edwin Serio having phenomenal seasons they've definitely come on you know leaps and bounds more than paxton who already had that kind of you know extremely high level anyway um mm-hmm. you know definitely overshadows and you know, hurts that perception. All right. So, Buzz, you talked about something that I was really highlighted for me in the game because at the there was a big switch in the 70th minute when uh, we talked about Paxton being subbed out for Hara. And the big move for me was is that it suddenly seemed that this put Alan Velasco in the middle all the time. Like, suddenly he shifted from a wing position to a middle position and that completely changed the game because there has been long stretches of time over the last, you know, since he, you know, his big debut that you just feel like Velasco's not getting the ball enough and we're not really getting to see him. Boy, howdy, I got to tell you, he looks really good in the middle of the field and he kind of took that game over from that point. And I'm beginning to wonder, is it possible we may see more of him in the middle of the field? Yeah, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about this for sure. There was about a 10-minute run where he was coming from like a deep eight spot, and it literally made the hairs on my back of my neck stand up. Like He was so- bossing the game. Yeah, like my soccer vibe mojo just went through the roof, and I was like, oh, my God, please do more of this. Now, specifically, uh, I asked about this too. I'm getting all my Nico stuff out of the way. Um, he said the game plan at that point was that Frank O'Hara came in and kind of moved up high next to Jesus, almost like a two-striker system. And they gave Marco Farfan 
the high responsibility, like the wing where Variola had been. So basically they made the left back into a Lucci style left back, if you will, a Hollingshead style left back. And that let Velasco go inside and basically play the attacking eight spot that Paxton normally plays. And that was, of course, so exciting and dynamic watching him run at those gaps and run at those defenders. It, it was electric. Uh, and to, to play on the idea of will you see it more, you remember I told you two weeks ago that they were working on another formation. And that formation is a variation of the 4-3-3, but it's a double pivot variation. That means Edwin is as the six and Brandon sits back next to him as a deep eight, basically. And when they, when they do it, Velasco, Alan Velasco, comes in and plays as a 10 underneath Jesus, like a like a pure attacking mid. So that formation and that tactic is 100% in the bag, and it's 100%, I think, a thing you're going to see going forward. Uh, and I really want to see a lot of it because that is so exciting when he was in there. Well, I, I would comment that a lot of what we saw in that 10 minutes is the type of ball progression and beating of defenders that we, I think we've been expecting out of Paxton. Yeah, but... It, it, Yes, 100%. That's what I said about that explosion into the box that we were all hoping that Paxton would be doing, and he's not. That's the tiny piece of his game that's missing. Now, admittedly, in that stage of the game, Dallas is trying to get back in it, and they're being really aggressive, and and Blasco has some freedom there that Paxton ordinarily doesn't for the bulk of the game. You know, I think he could do that just as easily if you gave him that freedom, if you put him in a a higher position like that and rotated back, because that's basically what happened was they rotated – Brandon back a little bit to give him the freedom to go up. So I, if Paxton's in that shoes, would it look like that? I, I, I would hope so. Uh, we haven't seen it this year, you know, and, and, and Alan got the chance to do it. But that's definitely what we're not seeing. from Like Paxton right now playing as an eight is not playing like the uh, De Bruyne or free eight. He's playing like a traditional eight. Like he and Brandon are both even and parallel mm-hmm. back there in the midfield. They're both playing like legitimate normal eights. So what was what what was that deal with Paxton pressing so far up in the field? Like, was he man marking somebody specific that was dragging him so deep into the Houston half of the field? No, I think that was the coverage when uh, Allen was drifting inside that he's slotting outside to cover that space. I think it's mainly Ah. what that was. You know, they you know, they definitely were trying to press, um, you know, some of the backs that they do a mid press kind of Dallas does. It's Mm -hmm. ordinarily it's around midfield that they do that under this coach, you know, so I I don't know of a specific trigger that they were doing, but there were definitely times where, where Paxton looked like he was playing left wing and really was, it was, it was just because, uh, Allen had come inside and sort of underneath. And so he was shifting out for coverage, you know, and and there are some triggers that they run, you know, and if, and if Velasco's out of position, Paxton's trying to get out there and cover that trigger on the outside back, for example. Um, but that's pretty standard. That's not out of the, out of the sorts. All right. Changing topics, Dan, did the Houston free kick cross the line? Was that a goal that should have been called? Um, and, and at the time, I was like, yep, that's that's in. I still feel like, you know, if you were to really, like, have that perfect view, it would probably be barely in, but that perfect view doesn't exist. So whatever the referee called it, VAR couldn't do anything about it. Buzz, you got a vote on this? Yeah, I uh, in real time, I thought it was out. I thought it was not like even close, like it happened so fast. And when they showed the replays, then I thought, oh, man, that was close. Um, the pictures, 
you know, are, are not super clear. I, I kind of think it's, it's so fractional that I think it's kind of right. Just a tiny bit on the line, you know, if they'd have called it in, I, I don't think I could have argued with it. And, you know, and the fact that they didn't, I don't think I could argue with it either way. There's not a really good definitive look. I, I did think, however, real time that it, it had come down actually in front of the line. It happened so fast. Yeah, it All was right. interesting we're watching the broadcast back uh, because the the two commentators for the the English uh, commentary for Univision they were so adamant that it was definitely in and all the replays made it so clear and I'm just thinking like do you understand it has to be the whole of the ball across the whole of the line and you you really want to see space between it like it, it, you know the photogram uh, the photogrammetry guy said it was it was not a goal by like one and three quarter inches, maybe on a super blurry picture. It was, it was close. It was just, it was just so funny how adamant for 10 minutes they were that, you know, it was an outrage that it wasn't called and that VAR didn't overturn it. Yeah. I never saw anything that definitively showed me that the call was wrong. Um, and I don't know. I, it, I, I tend to like the way Major League Soccer calls these things, but that's the one kind of uh, uh, hole in their system that they have because they don't do goal line technology, which has become such a, a, a critical tool in other leagues. Uh, but it's also very expensive and hard to set up to get right. But I, I don't well, know, man. It, I, I'm sure you couldn't do it on some of the turf fields for the, uh, where you've got to like bury sensors and stuff. Uh, uh, someone fair, did yeah. say a $100 goal line camera. And funnily enough, I was watching the Miami game and they did have, in their goalposts, they have one that's kind of at field level and one that's a couple of feet up, and you would get the perfect view. But, you know, not everyone's going to have that, unfortunately. Well, that's a situation where, depending on what side of the ball you're on, you are either uh, you either thought it was in or you thought it was out, and it yeah. just happened to go uh, Dallas's way on that particular moment. Now, I, I do want to talk about and be honest about my reaction to this moment, but when the 84th minute happened... And this uh, substitution uh, parade took place, and Nico Estevez started throwing out what I call the substitution of spares. <laughs> <laughs> because in the 84th minute, it was uh, Quinone, who I think we all you know know how we feel about uh, Faco, and then in Sebeling, who is the draft pick, and this new guy who I'd never even seen before, Quinonez. Uh, and unfortunately for him, his very first action on the <laughs> in the game without even touching the ball was to fall over and almost cost uh, Dallas a goal, which would have been really embarrassing if that had ha happened. But I'll be damned because at that point I was convinced Nico was just kind of like closing up shop and and uh, and was kind of giving it up at, uh, at that point and, and calling it a day. But I'll be damned if that group of guys didn't go out there and really put on a good show. Yeah, I think that the trigger to the whole thing was Hara's tenacity and energy when he came in. I really liked him and Jesus in a two-striker system. You know, Hara's banging on guys and getting their attention, you know, and, and, and bringing some fight. And, you know, a guy that knows how to play in a big game, a guy that is super professional, as, as we now have all said many times, it's everything is great about him except for the pace and how much he gets paid. But, like... Outside of that, he's fitting into his role. He's doing wonderful things for this club. And that was the trigger for the whole thing. Because then when Siki came in and Faku came in, they both understood the assignment and brought, again, energy and fight and tenacity. Something that, I, as I talked about earlier, Coach said was missing from the first half. 
you know, missing from the fact that this is a rivalry game. And also at that point, of course, they're looking to get forward and cross havoc. And both of those guys are willing to get forward and cross havoc. And it was chaos making situations and they overloaded the Houston defense and they made it all work, you know? So it's, I cannot argue with any of those subs. I think they all were terrific. Um, you know, as I, as you said, Faco's not the guy you think of as a get into the box eight, but he is a guy that understands the tenacity required in the moment. And, and I think that goes a long way. Sometimes there's a, when things are working now, if things aren't working, you bring in those guys and the thing craps out and it's terrible. But when things are going right, you bring in those guys and they have the perfect mentality to get it done. It, things get on a roll. My favorite thing about substitutions is after the game, uh, Nico says, yeah, I wanted to bring on guys with a different profile. We've had so many years where it's plan- there's no plan B and it's he's got the same exact profile. We just hope he does he gets lucky better. and does something a little <laughs> bit differently or better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as opposed to like, hey, this isn't working. Let's try something different. It's, it's so refreshing to see. Yeah, you, you have to look at the fact, for example, that Seeking the Sebling is a high-energy, high-movement, tenacious, dogged kind of player, but he's Brandon Cervania's backup, which is a very, very different kind of player. Brandon is gliding around the field and smooth and is often more often in the right position than the wrong position, which is the opposite of Sebling, who's still learning the game. You know, So there's a very different vibe. Brandon sits deep and passes it along where Seb, uh, Siki is one of the highest players on the team in terms of progressive dribbles because he grabs the ball and goes, you know, so he's a former yeah. winger. Yeah. So different, different profiles. Faku and Edwin have very different profiles. You know, you're looking at Hara coming in is very different from, he didn't replace Jesus, but when he's up there next to him often where he does come in, it's very different. So the coach has got all these tools on the bench. It's a lot of fun to watch him use them. I have trouble predicting what he's going to do. Like a lot of coaches in the past, I can always predict what the subs are going to be. But this one, I, I have trouble sometimes just as I have trouble uh, predicting what he's going to do with the lineups, like when he's going to rest guys, he's making these micro game to game adjustments about where players are and who's in and who's out and adapting the tactics. It's fantastic to watch. Uh, and Sebling, the player whose name I probably need to look, work a little harder to learn how to pronounce, may now be my new favorite player on the team because I have in my notes written here with a big giant star, his skill check just before Hara's header off the post. Man, that was impressive. And, I, you know, I again, Buzz, a lot of my understanding about this kid comes directly from you, which yep. was he was a late round or a late draft pick uh, and a guy that I think uh, didn't, play middle of the field center mid in college and you know other than, I mean I guess he didn't have a great open cup game but you know every time he goes out here and kind of does the cleanup bit yeah. I'm a little more impressed but to buy him game after game yeah I think you can see the reaction of his teammates after the game that tells you what kind of kid he is he's really likable um in college he played mostly as a wing but he would tend to he had tendencies too to come into the middle and attack from the middle but 100 he was not an eight they, they totally picked this kid based on like the profile of his talent and how they thought they could adapt it to playing as an eight in this team, the box to box guy. Uh, so credit to the collective scouting staff and coaching staff who identified this kid. I don't know who identified him, but whoever it did, it's probably Marco leads that group. So certainly Marco Fruzzi. So certainly he was a big part of it. 
you know, so as good as he's been down, uh, makes up for how bad Bartlett's been, I guess. Uh, but certainly like it's, it's been a revelation now in the open cup, of course, you see like why I, I keep saying that I'm not ready to see him start a game because there are deficiencies that show up when you ask him to play a 90 minute performance. But when he comes in and late with 15 or 20 minutes left, and he's got this high energy profile, this high, this chaos creating attacking, you know, or if you want him defensively, this tenacious defensive profile, it works really great in the short stretch right now. Obviously, hopefully, they're hoping that they can develop that into a complete game player at some point. But that's not this season. That'll be down the road quite a bit. Hey, I'm going uh, oh, go to go. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, go back and listen to um, his part of the press conference. You'll love him even more. He's basically Paxton. Oh, is he? Good. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to I think I'm quoting the right person from the discord and I apologize to him if uh, if if I'm not quoting the right person my apologies to this person for putting his name on it and my second apologies to the person who I'm not correctly naming but I believe it's Dustin El Jefe in the discord who uh, made the, who threw out the really hot sports opinion that he continues to believe that Jesus Ferreira is not a number 9 and never will be a number 9 That was Dustin it was Dustin who said that. Okay. I, Discuss. Yeah, I disagree with that, actually. I think he's a great nine. I just think he's not a traditional nine. I, you know, I, I went on um, Glenn Davis's show the other day, the Houston uh, guy, he had to talk about FC Dallas, and, and I mentioned the, the fact that when I said, you know, when I first said to Coach Nico, I called Jesus a false nine, and Coach Nico pushed back on that idea with his build nine suggestion. And we had a laugh about that. And that's a funny bit, right? That people don't want to call a false nine a nine, you know, a false nine. They don't like that terminology for some reason, but that's what he is. And the build nine is how our coach here describes it. And what that essentially means is, is it's, it's a nine based on movement, but movement that's more into the facilitating progressive play in the sense that he's coming out of the middle. He's coming back. He's checking back. He's moving out. You know, he's creating space with his movement and then powering back in there to exploit that space. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a very it's it's not a post up nine. He's not Alan Shearer. It's a different kind of nine. The modern game a lot of times uses these guys that are not prototypical um, big guys up top. They don't, he's not an over the top nine like Jeff Cunningham or Dante Washington. You know, he's more like Jason Christ. And how many, that's the guy I compare Jesus to more than any other in this franchise right. history. And how many years did we watch Jason Kais play as a nine? You know, is, is, did we like him better when he was paired with Graziani? Sure. But Christ played as a false nine, that kind of off movement based nine all the time. You know, you could argue that Kenny Cooper, when Kenny Cooper played as a nine, did the same thing. We all wished he wouldn't because of his body, but he always <laughs> did, you know. So this is just a different kind of modern nine. I actually think that you can look at his scoring efficiency rates, like how often his, how many goals he gets per shots. And I think he's a phenomenally good finisher, all better when he's one time triggering it, quick trigger, right? We talk about that. He's all the time. Don't try and dribble. You know, he's been a nine for most of his career until unless he was in a team with Pepe in it, you know? Yeah. I think the guy's a great nine. It's just not Blas Perez type nine, right? It's a different kind of guy. And a different, in a very different system too. Oh for yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. This is not the same. The systems now. This is the system the U.S. national team plays. This is one that our coach is doing here, 
Uh, it's a very different system than we've had here in the past. It's different than Oscar played the same shape, the same 4-3-3, but it was executed very differently. Different tactics, different method, you know. So every coach is different. And for this team, Jesus is a perfect fit as a nine. All right. I know we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. We've speculated um, uh, and discussed it ad nauseum, and it really seemed to come to peak discussion both on the broadcast uh, and uh, online afterwards. And it's the issue with uh, Estevez's desire and request to water the living hell out of that field to the point where uh, everybody's slipping, falling, and it, at times it feels like it's doing nothing more than endangering Dallas's chance of winning games, and I and nobody can quite figure out why it's happening so much, and do we have any more information about what's going on with all of the damn watering of the field? I do, in fact, have more information about that because I did like actual reporter things <gasps> and went and actually talked to somebody in FC Dallas's ground crew to find out what the hell's going on. Uh, and did you meet down like in a, in a, uh, in a parking garage <laughs> no. late at night? No, but they came out to training and talked to me. Uh, it, um, the, it is 100% not the watering of the field. That's not what it is. It has to do with, multiple factors of how fields are maintained. Uh, and very specifically, the Dallas field right now, by the way, it's due for its um, tear out at the end of June when they replace the whole thing. I don't know if you guys ever noticed that. It's oh, yeah. Guys yeah, 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 yeah. Fans, regular fans may not, but that it gets completely replaced sort of in that window after the Hall of Fame concert, depending on when the Open Cup game comes in there, the, uh, the next one, if they advance, knock on wood. So here's what happened with the field. This winter, you guys may not have noticed if you're not paying attention to things like growing cycles. Apparently, like between December and the, the beginning part of the season, there were 70 days where there could have been growing cycle. And only 10 of those days actually got into the temperature range for the grass to start to grow. So that's a really low number um, for this for Texas in general. Uh, which means that like it was a cooler spring than before. And then on top of that, it was the football load, which um, from high school, more high school football games than they originally thought were going to be in the stadium and from the bowl games and the high school soccer games that have been played there and from a couple of concerts and from Dallas Cup and from the GA Cup. So it literally is a matter of overwork and lack of growing that have caused the um, Bermuda it's got two, it's got Bermuda and it's rye. It's got two things. And they, the, the Bermuda actually works as the structure for the rye to grow on. That is, this is very complicated. But essentially, they've lost the Bermuda. It hasn't grown and filled in and basically is dying and coming loose. And that's why the rye and the rest of it just tears loose and they slide on it. So that's why it's happened. That's why it's, you've like, this has never happened here before. It's true. It's just a really weird confluence of overwork and growing and it's causing it to happen. Now, 100% as the home team, the right combination of cleats should help this, but it's players' choices what cleats they're gonna wear and they're not doing a good enough job picking their cleats, bottom line. This is my opinion, this part, <laughs> the cleat part, because not everybody is slipping. It's just a couple of guys that are not getting the right footwear. So the, the watering of the field is not that, all that does, because I even asked about that and he said that, that just, all that does is wets the leaf. That has nothing to do with the grass tearing loose and, and, and shredding and people sliding. It's a completely different issue. So is the field like super soft or is it super hard? It's basically 
basically the 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 framework of that it's hard to explain. Uh, he told me, Dan, you can verify this. He told me that in Europe they actually use artificial grass, like turf yeah, threads, and like they put it like every couple of inches to make a structure for the other grass to grow onto. Right. Yeah, Leighton has it. It starts as like a net, and then yeah, uh, it's called grass fiber or fiber sand or something like that. But right. yeah, it, it helps in the winter when you kind of get you get the bare patches. Right. So that's what happens. And here, he said in the U.S., they use the Bermuda to do the same thing. The interweaving of the, that grass, that different kinds of grass, the Bermuda provides the structure that ordinarily digs in with its roots and has a stronger hold and keeps the rye in place. And it's the combination of the two in the winter part of the year, mind you, that makes that work and makes it hold together. And because they've lost the Bermuda, that's why you see the rye pull loose or you see the sections where the gold mouth has just a light, it's only dirt. Right, we've mm-hmm. never seen that before. It's because the, the ride just gets kicked loose. Or like right down the middle where you get heaviest play, that's getting kicked loose a little bit. Or on the sideline, like you can even see the sideline where the officials yeah. running more. You can see that groove more than you can in the past. And it's just because this Bermuda's not holding. And that's it. That's all it is. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this uh, earlier this season when whoever it is, I don't know if it's the athletic or whoever does that annual kind of uh, anonymous players poll that they do every year that we always get some really cool information out of. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I really hope whoever does that takes a minute to include a section in that questioning about what are the best pitches in Major League Soccer? What are the worst pitches? Or just kind of give the fan base an idea of what fields players do and don't like to play on and i want to under also understand their differences or how much they hate or don't care about the differences between grass and turf fields because i i do very much have a sense the older i get and the more that i talk to younger guys is that what you and i uh think is you know <laughs> blasphemy which is the the fake field is becoming less and less of an issue for the younger generation of players because they all grew up playing on it yeah, I, I asked Pass about that one time, uh, and he said we we grew up training on that Dr. Pink field like every day, like all through the seventeens and nineteens. We're we're totally used to the turf. We don't care. We don't mind it. You know, yeah. I I don't like it because of the way the ball bounces slightly differently. Even like the very very best turf, to me, I can think you can tell the difference. Now it's getting better and better all the time, and the gap is closing. So, you know, different places have different stuff. Obviously, the stuff that you and I grew up on as a kid was like playing on cement. It was horribly brutal, <laughs> you know. Oh and yeah. Stuff now is completely different, and the kids don't care. I still care. I think it's an, you know, it's like there's a reason why the World Cup's not played on turf, right? Unless it's a women's World Cup. Well, that's stupid. Well, no. When we uh, shifted and changed our Sunday leagues uh, to the one that plays out at MoneyGram, and we got to play on those fields at MoneyGram, I all of us talked about. Could you imagine growing up playing on these surfaces? I mean, <laughs> we were all a kid getting stuck playing at Moss oh. Park or Hobby or any of those awful city of Dallas fields that were yeah. just you know like parking lots. And these kids today are playing on you know putting greens. It's amazing. <laughs> it's it's such a, a different deal. All right, oh, uh, Buzz. Peter, you oh, remember go ahead. I'm sorry. Like a lot of the surfaces around here are made out of clay. And in the dry yeah. summers, it would gap. And you get those almost inch-wide gaps uh, in the field that you could step into and turn your ankle, and the ball would not roll. Uh, it would kind of bounce across. Oh, my God, it was so awful. 
Yeah, it was bad. And yeah, and now you realize kids get to play on, you know, Toyota Stadium oh, or Toyota yeah. Soccer Park Fields or MoneyGram or you know, there's a few other places that have really nice fields. And I and and, and actually to be fair, I don't mind playing on uh at, on field turf fields. Uh, the ones that are good, I think actually play uh, pretty well. I kind of enjoy it. Now, Buzz, I also have heard through the grapevine you got special permission to attend training this week, even though the official email out there said it was closed. Yeah, it's it was closed on Wednesday. So far, when I've asked for permission to come, um, they're letting me on Wednesday. Uh, I think it's such because, a charmer. Yeah, well, um, I, I you know, who knows why, but I, I assume it's because they know uh, I'm not taking pictures or video, and that I'm not out here writing stories about, um, uh, you know, the exact sort of tactical things you're going to get on the weekend. So giving so far, away the secrets, you're yeah. not a giveaway of the secret kind of guy. Right. Right. What I'm doing is big picture sort of background stuff. And I want, and I've explained to them and I've explained to coach more specifically that, you know, what I'm doing is I want to be able to talk about how guys are performing in training, you know, so I can tell you, Oh, I think this guy should be starting and that kind of thing. And they, and they understand that. So, um, essentially they're basically trusting me so far. So until I burn them, I imagine I'm hoping that of course, cause it's week by week basis. <laughs> Don't say it like that. You know, buzz. I, I, well, you know what I mean? Like I won't do it on purpose, but hopefully on accident, I won't do it. But you know, most of the time I go on Tuesday when it's approved, but so far twice, Tuesday has been canceled and they've been and coach. The staff has been kind enough to let me come on Wednesday. So buzz is lying in wait for that moment where he can reveal the starting lineup for a, a late August. Yeah afternoon game yeah yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> well no uh that is something i actually asked him about was the lineups because um i've yet to see in a training session that it's not mixed groups where there's not a clear first team and so i, I actually asked him this week as I, I you know how late in the week do you do that because i've never done that and he said the earliest he ever does it is on friday and sometimes he doesn't even do it till the day of the game that he won't even tell him who's starting till the day of the game so he's definitely a very late in the week guy in that regard um, I don't know how early he decides, but uh, he definitely doesn't let the team know until late in the week, which is interesting. Every coach is different. Colin Clark, you could tell on Monday, which I thought was funny. Well, I, I feel like this is the official segment of the show where we get you to give to us the Thomas Roberts update. Yeah. So listen, here's the thing. Thomas Roberts is stylistically a player. I don't that, like how you started this report, yeah, Buzz. Well, no, I don't I'm just like this. I'm just coming myself. Because Thomas Roberts is a style of player that speaks to me on in soccer terms, right? Like everything about whispers. the way he plays. Yeah, he whispers sweet nothings in soccer terms to me. So like when I watch him train, I just shake my head in bewilderment. Like how the hell is this kid not playing? Because he looks amazing. You know, it's the touch is sublime. It's just so phenomenal. He's bouncing off two or three guys and turning away with the ball. The but he always has had that. The most noticeable difference between now and the last time I saw him, which was effectively like two years ago now, is he's he has noticeably changed his range, the amount of ground he covers, and uh, how much he moves when he doesn't have the ball, which is all, of course, related to his ability to cover defensively and play as an eight. So, uh, you know, I asked Coach, he looks great to me. Obviously, still, he's going to work his way into Coach's rotation. I did ask Nico how he plans on using Thomas. And he said, it's absolutely in the Paxton, basically free eight kind of role. That's going to be his role. So effectively he's Thomas is, I'm sorry, he's Paxton's backup, you know, going forward. So the kid looks as good to me as you can look. Now the stuff I'm watching is not big, gigantic team concept stuff. So that's where this coach will want to see him in that and make sure he understands it before he gets in the rotation. 
Do you know what number he's going to wear? Oh, well, I imagine that they've, he's been on the roster the entire time. So I'm sure it's the same 23 oh. he's had for like, you know, when, when they loan players out, they don't take them off the FC Dallas roster. Like Justin Chase still listed his whatever number he, he is. I can't remember what number it is right now. And Dante Seeley still listed his 31, for example. Okay. Although Nano took that number, but, you know, he's still there listed as that number. So it, does Thomas look bigger or taller or taller, you know, built, yeah. filled out at all? No, not filled out. He looks, he doesn't look like a kid anymore but he's still really lanky. Um, he, he definitely is taller. I would guess just that while looking at him out, out there standing with guys that he's somewhere between six foot up to maybe six one. So, cause he's clearly like the second or third tallest guy in whatever group he's in, because like hedges is taller, Jafari is taller and everybody else is shorter. So it's actually for FC short. It'll actually be nice to have somebody out there <laughs> slightly taller. Uh, but you know, just, I, when I watch him play, he just makes my soccer heart sing because of the, the way he plays, the style he plays with, the splitting passes. You know, right now the biggest detriment is that you can see that he's not on the same page as everybody because he hasn't been here. Like you know, guys move like the guys that he knows are fine, but like Paul Ariola and Alan Velasco move differently than he's expecting. So there'll be a slight mispass here and there from that. But it was always only with people that he's never played with before that you could see that kind of happening. And Coach did say the first week he was back was tough for him because it was a game where they had three weeks and he didn't really get to do work with anybody. So really, this was only like the second or third session he's had since he's been back, full session that I got to see him. So, You know, it dawns on me as we're sitting here talking about this, Thomas, it's been so long since Thomas has played for this team. I think we decided last week, what is it, 2019? Yeah, I looked it up. Was that the last time he was with you? Yeah. All right. So the reality is there are a lot of people listening to this podcast that have never seen Thomas Roberts uh, play, and he's probably more like a mythical creature than an actual player. So uh, Buzz or Dan, I don't care who, could somebody you know, just kind of tell everybody the story of Thomas one more time and maybe also at the same time describe what makes him unique or special or why you're excited about him being back with the team. Danny, we give it a shot. Uh, it's flowing locks and the way we get to whisper. Uh, no, I mean, he's just such a smooth, rangy passer. Um, something that I think Dallas has had trouble with at times. Uh, we're starting to see more of it from Brandon. We've seen plenty of it in the past from from Paxton, but I mean, you know, ever since he was what, 15, 16, we've kind of looked at him and been like, this is going to be the guy that looks like he couldn't do, you know, almost looks like he can't do anything, but is going to be like a potentially phenomenal professional. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, everyone uh, probably has a bit of a personal stake in it with the, uh, the, the run of luck he's had. Uh, it'd be Buzz, why don't you talk about his background and where he comes from? Sure. Well, he's from Arkansas. <laughs> so he's definitely, as far as I know, the greatest player to ever come out of Arkansas. If that helps you any. <laughs> um, he, he and Brian Reynolds, of all people, are best friends. Uh, they hang out together and they hang out together a lot in Europe all the time. Um, Thomas is, for my money, and I said this before, he's the best dribbler to ever come out of the academy. He literally would dribble through five or six dudes and score all the time when he was in the 19s. Um, he was the, the problem, quote unquote, the problem for Thomas is that he was a pure 10. He's a playmaker. He's a dribbler. He's a destroyer, but nobody does that anymore. Right. Even if you're playing a four, two, three, one, which has a 10 in it, you don't play that way. You have to play a two way game. Now it's the, it's the Ozil problem, right? The, the dying position, you have to be able to do the defensive duties as well. You have to be able to press, you have to be able to get back. You have to be able to play as an eight effectively. Right. So that's been the 
dilemma for Thomas the last since he signed as a pro. That first season as a rookie, he played like six games out of the first eight or ten or something because Dallas was really banged up. And then he never played again. And a lot of it is because at the time he wasn't really dialed in on the defensive responsibilities. So he's been working on that for a couple of years now. And then, of course, COVID happened, limited a lot of his opportunities to go play for North Texas, for example, um, because when he had done that the first year, he just destroyed those games when he was in them and cared. You know, And that was always a trick, too, with Thomas was and when I talked to various people that know him was like, well, dude, when you go down, you have to act like it's, you have to make it a play. So it looks really stupid that you went down. And at the end of 2019, he started doing that. And that was when they quit sending him back down there because it was obvious that he was way better than everybody else in that game. So then, you know, there was a, it was a, a disconnect with Lucci in the sense that he wasn't getting playing time, wasn't getting off the bench. And he just sort of needed a fresh perspective. And so they worked out, you know, whether he worked it out or whether they worked it out or whatever, he got this loan to Austria. Bayern Munich was involved in it too. They brought him back like three times to look at him. Bayern Munich did um, in like two weeks training, training stints. And he also had some other trials in Germany too. And so I'm convinced that they helped arrange that stand in Austria. And then in Austria, when he first went there, the team was really into building around him and, and developing him. But the coach turned out to be a really defensive coach and really wanting like a lot of Facos out there instead of a lot of Thomas Roberts out there. So he didn't get to play as much as he wanted. And then Dallas obviously has recalled him. Now, when I asked Nico about him, I said, you know, what'd you think of him over your first couple of days? And he said, I've known Thomas since he was 15. Oh, he wow. Said, he said, we were tracking him when we were with Columbus. And when I was with various youth national teams, you know, for whatever. So I've known Thomas since then. I've been watching him play since then. When I was with the national team, we were well aware of him. And I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of what kind of skill set he has. And I'm really excited to get him back. So I thought that was really cool that it's like, I'm like, I'm like, great. Let's see if Thomas can get a chance under this coach's new system. I'm like, dude, the coach already knows him. He already knows exactly what he's getting. So that's, and the fact that they recalled him and won him back, I think that hopefully says that he's going to get a good opportunity. Yeah. And for those who have never seen him, it's hard not to, it's hard to miss Thomas because he's this lanky, tall, skinny kid with this shocking, almost white hair. It's so blonde. I'm assuming it still is, but yeah, he didn't, yeah, it still he didn't is. dye it blue or anything. Did he? <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it, I like to, sometimes I like to compare Dallas players to famous players so that people can know stylistically what to expect. He looks alike and he moves like Thomas Mueller in my book. Now he doesn't play a different, plays a different position. But when you watch him run, you watch him play, that's the vibe I get. That very German, very tall, very lanky with that same floppy hair, light colored hair. So, um, but super talented on the ball. I'm, I'm really excited for the chance to see him play in this system because I think he's going to be really good. All right. Next up in a couple of days, they travel to Kansas City to go take on Sporting KC at Children's Mercy Park. The game's at 730. Uh, any lineup predictions or thoughts about that game before we move on to the final piece of the podcast? Yeah, I think I think that you can watch coach still working on um, workload stuff in training and with rotations and with early substitutions because they know he's basically got his first 11 locked in, um, which everyone at this point should be able to predict what they are. There's only two positions that are rotating at all. And one is the Faco Edwin rotation. And if we follow the trend so far, Faco should start on the road as he has the last couple of road games would be my guess there. You know, if it could it be Edwin, absolutely. It could be Edwin, but the last, I think it's the last two. Now Facundo has started on the road. And then the other one is the Nanu uh, Tuomasi right back 
transition. Um, Tuomasi got a little time off for workload because he started like three games last week in training, but he still was going full out. And then Nanu is back in training and looks, to my eye, he looked like he was moving better and smoother than he has since he arrived. So those two dudes are definitely in battle. You can flip a coin which one it's going to be against, you know, sporting. Uh, I don't think Emma did anything bad. I don't think Nana really did anything bad that in the games before, before he got hurt. So which one it'll be is your guess as good as mine. Maybe back to Nanu, but that's just pure guess on my part. Otherwise, the rest of the 11 is locked in. The other nine guys. Is this the weekend that we get to see Thomas for the first time maybe as a sub? Maybe on the bench. I uh I don't know. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get a good feel from coach about whether he thought Thomas was in the mix yet. And I, I was, he had to get onto a phone call. So I didn't get that. I only got him for like 10 minutes rather than, you know, more than I might like. So I don't have a definitive answer on that. I okay. certainly like the way he looked. And I certainly think that the way Brandon and the workload that Brandon and Paxton had been getting the ability to have Siki on the bench and Thomas on the bench or another eight, like it's been Khalil some too, because he's been playing as an eight, like to get both of those guys out of the game if it's going well might be really important. So mm-hmm. possibly, possibly. That's not a good answer, I know. Okay, no worries. All right, Dan, I'm going to turn to you for this next final segment of the podcast tonight because I feel like we uh, hyped it and wondered and speculated about it uh, endlessly. Uh, could you give everybody your personal review of the new north end zone or behind the north goal thing that's on the stage. I don't know what to call it. A sign, a statue. What is that thing? Uh, I mean, they're referring to it as a, as a, as a crest. Uh, so no, sorry. They're referring to it as a shield. Um, a little underwhelming, you know. We were told that there might be smoke, there might be fire, there might there's, there was going to be lights. There was one light. It was just the ring around the outside, the white part of the uh, the outline, and they had this whole thing of ah, oh, we have uh, these two. You know, they did that daft superhero day, so they had what Wonder Woman and <laughs> Superman or some shit standing next to the Chick Fil A cows. <laughs> and then they were going to hit this button that said red alert and then that would start the the sirens for when the players come out which is fine they had this like awesome video that they played before and totally unrelated to that and then you get this hokey two people fake punching a little wooden sign and then orange and white smoke starts billowing out from uh, those little stands where they have the smoke machines. Just someone was like putting so down. So those a red smoke... boxes in front of it are smoke machines. Yeah, they've got smoke okay. machines and like like regular smoke machines, like you see a DJ have or something. Well, colored smoke comes from a smoke grenade. You can't color the the other stuff. It's just vapor. So there's someone still like the red alert sirens going off, and one of the one of the canisters of smoke's going off and the other one, the guy's still trying to set it down beside the box and run away before it turns him orange. And uh, Why is it orange smoke, by the way? That's a is good that- question. <laughs> so, supposedly, their answer is that what they got was mislabeled. Here's the thing. That should have been red and blue. So, did, were both mislabeled and they just happened to be the opposition team's colors? Or did somebody that works at the smoke grenade store happen to be a dynamo 
fan and pulled a fast one. Uh, on I, I, I believe it's more like so. Talking to people, it sounded like even internally, no one knew what to expect from this sign. It was just well kept secret. So maybe somebody misunderstood the assignment. It's like, hey, yeah, uh, get the opposition's colors because we're going to show that we're going to smoke them or some dumb shit like that. And then now they're trying to save face, but. Yeah, they did that, and it started the the light. And I mean, I know a lot of people said, "Hey, it's a two o'clock game; it's dumb. The light's gonna be dim." That part of the stadium is well lit by the floodlights. It's gonna be dim regardless. Yeah, but it it goes on the whole game. So at some point, what, the light be a does. Penalty. Yeah, so at some point there is gonna be a penalty at that end, and someone is gonna say, "Turn that bloody light off, so I can concentrate." Well, does it do anything when they score? No. It has some smoke that goes up in front of it. No, that was from the boxes in front of it. Oh, but the, well, sign yeah, it yeah. the sign itself doesn't do anything. No. There's a ring of white lights around it. Well, yeah. no, so, I got that suppo- part. But, yeah. Supposedly, okay. there was the potential for smoke and fire. Now, you know, the Houston game was windy. Maybe they decide to hold off on that part. Maybe that is a thing. Um, I'm just waiting for a ball to hit. That's going to be hilarious. Well, there's a big net, though. No, they take it down before the game. Oh. That's that's the same net that they, they have up before every game at both sides, and then they drop it, and then when the when the beer garden was there, that was the rigging that they used for the TIFOs. Oh, it was up for the North Texas game, is the reason I said that. Well, I was I, I was obviously just watching on television and, and seeing photos of it online, and it looks, it looks oddly. I know it's a big thing because I can see it sitting next to Toyota Tundra trucks, which I know are just a little less than six feet tall. So I know that it is thirty feet tall. But in that giant chasm of a space, it doesn't look that big, at least in photos. So does it look bigger in person? It's definitely better in person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's. Uh, you're right about it having a cavernous space, but it definitely is one of those things where I, I thought it filled the space. It has more depth to it, like, you know, 3D versus 2D. So it definitely feels it feels larger in person than it does look in the pictures, but I admit that it should be bigger for sure. Okay. What would have been cool is if the logo itself was 3D or like, I'm sitting here right now and as 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 you're both talking, the lights in my computer are you know they react to that sound how cool would that be if if the lights in the sign reacted to the crowd sound not just some little ring of light like your ring doorbell was rung and you forgot to answer it yeah i I was wishing that it was suspended from the the rigging for the state for the stage that it didn't have a stand that it was like floating hanging That's yeah I, that would be cool. well i saw i saw that they had some cables attached to it in one of the photos and i thought oh they're gonna raise it like maybe they'll lift it in the air on a goal or something and it yeah. blows smoke and late we're never getting lasers by the way damn it i just <laughs> can tell we're never gonna get lasers yeah um and the one the few photos that i saw it just it it's not big enough like the stage is beginning to look like that shelf in your house where you display tchotchkes and there's yeah, just ran, like, hey, remember, remember that sign that we had made to go out by the tollway that they made us take down? How about we just throw that on the stage? That's what it looks like to me. Yeah, I, the, it's better than nothing that was there before. I have I'm to not say sure that. it's better than the bleachers turned around with the signs on. Oh, yeah. Other than the fact the signs were old and crappy. 
well, I want to give them credit for trying to do something. I just it, it just feels like they spend an, a, a a whole lot of money for for a sign and it it just seems like a real opportunity to do something that kind of reacts to, like to your point like yeah. flashes with the with the crowd or you know goes nutso on a goal or it does something but i was really disappointed to see that it's essentially just a giant version of the crest yeah there's a lot of there's a current trend in because i see other stadiums through my work there's a current trend in a lot of venues to go with like, and you guys have seen it with Austin for sure. Uh, to to have all these lights change colors and light up the whole thing, and it goes dark, and this whole light show goes off on a goal, and that is cool. Yeah, it's cool. It's horrible for television, but it's cool. Yeah. So it's like what I would want on <laughs> on the stage would be was as, as Peter joked, like around that sign, like hanging from the rafters, like disco lights or lasers, and have burn baby burn go off, and all the lights come up, and these things go flying and zooming around like you're at a discotheque. I mean, that would be that'd be cool to me, you know, light yeah. up the whole thing, like light put, you know, the, this concrete behind the thing is essentially like a big gigantic mural. It's got tears of course, but you could light that up with all kinds of lights and go crazy when, I mean, just ordinarily you could light it up and you could have them go super crazy when they scored. Of course, again, I'm going to spend your money for you, Mr. Hunt, you know, uh, I get it, but still. I just wonder, cause when you're in the stadium, that thing's what, like, maybe one sixth of the different distance between the two pylons that actually hold the roof up of the garden. So it's, it's so underwhelming on TV. You just see that little edge where the thing, where it actually sits. So maybe you that's barely see it on TV, by the way, but it looks like there's something there. Then it gives that illusion. Yeah. I, I look, I, I want to give them credit because it, like I said, it wasn't cheap to do, to create what they had made. There's no way that thing didn't cost a lot of effing money to build it, right? And construct it and put it in place. I just don't I I just don't understand yeah. the thinking of not going the extra mile to make it do something cool because that seems to be the point of putting it there in the first place. Otherwise, you, why didn't, you know, I, I don't know. There's it's a, just weird to me. You know, there's it, a lot of like translucent plastic in that. There's a lot of access panels on the side of that thing. There's totally the potential that they they it evolves over time. I mean, I, I yeah, think that's what I was going to ask. Even if it stays as it is, it kind yeah. of mar it's an it's a landmark, right? Because this for so many years they've said they were going to do something and just no, no, we never said that or they've, you know, something changes. They actually followed through with something. Even if it's not good, they followed through. They said they were going to do it and they did it. And they did it in a timely manner. I have two hopes. One is that this is just the first stage of a process. And number two is that it looks better at night. Remember, this is a two o'clock day game. So maybe for a night game, it'll be a lot cooler. I don't think it will because the floodlights are going to hit it. Yeah, I just I wonder. Yeah, I I, yeah, I have all sorts of ideas and thoughts. That exact spot in the garden. The floodlights are damn bright there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I wish they had LED lighting so they could, you know, in my mind, what would be super cool is that the place goes dark on a goal and floodlights, two giants or spotlights from other parts of the stadium shine on it and, you know, sparks go off and, you know, the whole thing would be so kick ass. But I, you know, I guess maybe it's maybe it's just a work in progress and we're all getting uh, we're, we're, we're kicking it in the nuts too early. That they would definitely need to uh, have the floodlights redone for that because they've got the yeah. kind that takes like twenty minutes to warm up. <laughs> the, the old mercury lights that yeah, yeah take a, but, um, a, a coon's age no, I mean, to, to come on. Yeah, that, that that may be it. Maybe it's like 
you know, they, they gave themselves a really short deadline saying by the Houston game, and amazingly they did that. Kudos to them. Uh, maybe it is like next game we see and they've added the red lights and then there's some blue lights and maybe the white lights change and there's some kind of funky pattern and it's not just uh, someone's ring doorbell just going off for two hours. <laughs> what if on a goal, a door opens on the front of it <laughs> and Kenny Cooper pops out and throws confetti or something? How awesome would that be? I thought Kenny Cooper was uh, Tex Hooper. Isn't he doing that suit this year? Isn't that his bit? Hey. No, he was in the uh, he was in the section next to the supporter section for the He year. was. Yeah. I just think that'd be like joke in, whatever or laughing, whatever that old seventies show when the people yeah. popped out of the window and that would be great. That would be fun. I think it'd be fun to have him have him be Tex Hooper and have like a pregame thing with some kid and rip off the head and have it be Kenny Cooper in the suit. That'd be funny. That would be good. All right. Anything else that we're forgetting? Uh I have one. Okay, go ahead. Well, you remember there was some discussion. I can't remember where it was. It may have also been in the discord about the size of the Toyota, the stadium field, how it's, it's, um, it's one seventeen by 74. Yes. And we, and we wondered why I know I now know why. Yeah. Why? Detective work, actual reporting, uh, reporting sports yeah. journalism at its sports finest. finest. The reason it's 117 long is because the, there are these circular holes in the ground for the, uprights for the football and so the field is exactly as long as it can be and have those things not be in play so they're inside the goal rather than in front of the goal that that's why it's stupid football yep stupid high school football that's why it's why that's why it's 117 long and the 74 wide is because there has to be six feet of grass between the corner flag and the cement on the side of the field ah so that's why it's 74 you could, in fact, if you didn't need that six-foot rule, you could actually make it 75 quite easily. But it's six feet constraining, and that's why it's because of things like signboards and player safety, stuff like that. Yeah, I was surprised to learn this week that FIFA at some point had, I think, added that you can actually have a maximum size field for league games, not for FIFA international games, because that rule has always been a maximum of 80 wide and 120 long. I was shocked to see that you could, in a league somewhere, have a field that is a maximum of 100 yards wide by 130 yards long, and that seems ridiculous to me. (laughs) It wouldn't even be like soccer. It was so awful. Yeah. I just want to see the field that does like the maximum hundred and uh, sorry, the maximum hundred wide and the minimum hundred and ten long. <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> well, it'd be like a box, yes. But a hundred, a hundred by hundred and thirty is almost two NYCFC baseball park fields together. That's how big that yeah. is. Oh, I mean, depends whose numbers you believe. That might be more than two together well, I, that's true yes well it just seems i i don't know why and i don't know when that got added i my impression is that wasn't there many years ago when i was studying the laws of the game and i don't know why it got added because i don't does anybody really play on a field that is wider than 80 yards wide i can't no. imagine I or or more than 120 it. yards long i was trying to i was trying to remember i always i, I felt like there was a a stadium in england that had like an almost square field and I couldn't and I was convinced it was Charlton or Highbury and I, I was looking up like largest field sizes and I can't there's none like in like a 
top professional league that are over 75 or over 76 wide. Man, that is just uh, we uh, we started playing on a field that is uh, seventy five yards by a hundred and fifteen, and every time we step out on it as old men, we're like, "This is too effing big of a field. It is so huge," and so I can't even begin to imagine playing on a field that's a hundred yards wide. That <laughs> just seems so ridiculous. Yeah, the uh, the, the fields, um, the Toyota Stadium Soccer Center fields are apparently one fifteen by seventy five, so they're slightly shorter, yep. but well, one yard wider than the main, st- main stadium. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Oh, uh, we've played on one of those. Yeah, yeah. Oh, can you you guys, you've run around and kicked the ball a little bit on that Toyota Stadium field. Oh, and compared yeah. to the stuff I grew up on, that thing is humongous. It's massive. Yeah, it, it feels massive. massive. And I'm oh sure the God. stadium doesn't help uh, that perception, but it does. Yeah. yeah, when we've played in the media game and stuff, it, it just looks like an absolute <laughs> farm uh, yeah. of I'm not space. running all the way over there. Are you kidding? I'm going to stand right here in this center circle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to do a Valderrama. It's, it's bad, bad. <laughs> all right. Uh, on that field. Dan, you got anything? else uh no uh, i was i was trying to think is there any kit talk so we can send steve davis on the right way yeah uh <laughs> if you guys didn't stick around and watch the north texas game against houston after houston Dynamo dose uh they ended up losing but the two goals that north texas scored were, were both phenomenal goals there's a couple of dudes with some quality in that side who scored them um, the new striker, that's the, the Bayern Munich guy who came from Colombia, Mulatto. He mm-hmm. scored one that was a banger. And then um, the Spanish-Brazilian former U.S. U-17 kid, Andre Costa, scored the other. They were both really nice goals. And you also got Camungo down there and Blaine Ferry down there. Listen, that league is not great. Like, compared to USL 1, was better quality. But North Texas's team is pretty good. They got some real quality. So is Dynamo. They're the first-place team. North Texas lost. Wait, wait hold on. This league is better than USL 1, no, or USL 1 is, letter, is better than this? USL 1 was better than this across oh, the board. That's not good. Yeah, mo- a lot of the NLS Next Pro teams are really poor. Um, they're going with basically under-23 teams, most of them, and a lot of them are put together out of duct tape and bailing wire. Houston Dynamo is really good. Their team, they use a lot of homegrowns and they've got a lot of really good signings. Um, some of them out of their academy. So they're in first place. North Texas is also pretty good. It's not the very best, but there's, there are six or seven guys in that team that are pretty dang quality. Um, I mean, just to give you a, a state of the league, like the, they're using um, um, oh, Derek Waldeck, the captain, they're using him as a six this year. And Dan, you and I, you know that he's not really been up to being a six in USL one because he couldn't cover enough ground because the game was too dynamic. The players are too old and too professional. Well, th- it's fine this time. It's next pro is not as good, but nonetheless, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy watching these guys play for North Texas that are pretty quality. Uh, to be honest, both those goals were phenomenal. Okay. Really. Hey, have you met Padma Kal yet? No, I, I don't. You know, the when I go all the way to Frisco, I'm going up there to watch the first team train. I'm not going up there to watch, you know, North Texas train. And I just haven't had an opportunity because I've only been to like one North Texas game in person. It just hasn't worked out yet. I'll meet him eventually. That's fun. All right. That just seems like a love connection that needs to be made happen. I don't know, man. You never know until you meet a guy in person. I mean, I love his mentality and his attitude. I think it's all great. So we'll see. All right. Dan, thank you very much. Good stuff. Excellent work. Thank you, sir. Buzz, good quality sports journalism this week, my yeah, friend. I did the sporting thing, the reporting. You journalized thing. real hard. I you, journalized. You journalized yeah. super hard. I had my little hat on with my little cub, cubby reporter card sticking out of it. That was good. 
Did you have your little uh, spiral notebook in your pen that yeah. you had to lick oh, to yeah, get yeah. it to work right? No, it's right here in front no, of he, me. That's what he, I had to look it up. He actually does that in general. Yeah, <laughs> I have always that pen and a notepad. Yeah, taking notes. <laughs> champ, champ. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I don't do Corby's bit, but yeah. you don't, It's not Corby's bit. Oh, I thought it, it was Corby's bit. Oh. No, 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 no. Uh, 20s reporter guy was um, uh, uh, Tom Gribble, who used to produce oh, the old Gribble. bad radio. Yeah, yeah Gribble. Yeah. It was Gribble's bit. I, I just have to remind people I played Little League Baseball with Corby. That's my, my claim to fame. <laughs> I have to. Next time I see him, I'll have to ask him, see if he remembers you. Uh, he might. I mean, he was one year older than me, and we went to the same high school, you know, so I mean, he probably remembered me. He was a high school bully, wasn't he? Uh, not, not too bad. I mean, he definitely was more popular than I was, but you know, he wasn't too bad. He wasn't okay. mean to me. He was nice to me, you know, like you, maybe it's cause you would have kicked his same, ass. You know? No, uh, I mean, I'm bigger than him, but that's, I'm not really a kick people's ass kind of guy, but yeah, he, he was a pretty good little league baseball player. I was not, but he was pretty good. Right. You were a better soccer player than Corby. Uh, probably cause I don't think he ever played. <laughs> no, he did. Did he, he? Did play? Yeah, oh, okay. he did. Yeah. I don't remember him playing for my high school, so he wasn't that good, obviously. His wife apparently was quite a soccer player. She may have played in college, uh, Julie, if I remember correctly. Okay. She's also an Everton fan, so I need to go check on her. Yeah, she might be in trouble. Yeah. Hey, Dan, is Luton Town going up? Bloody hope so. Okay. Uh, well, we've got one game left. No, two games? One game? Two games left. We need two points to uh, seal the playoffs. We're currently in fourth. Yeah. Gotta say, I'm pretty happy with where Newcastle is these days. Yeah, you're in ninth place. I know. What a great uh, spring half of the season. Man, it's yeah. incredible. It's been a big shift. Yeah. Absolutely. It's exciting. Hi, this is Peacock again, reminding you that Third Degree the Podcast is brought to you by Soccer 90, your source for FC Dallas, U.S. national team, and international club gear. Check out the new arrivals dropping daily, gear from leagues around the world, fresh Serie A, Premier League, Bundesliga, and of course, MLS and FC Dallas club merch available now. Remember, Third Degree listeners get 20% off at Soccer90.com with promo code ThirdDegree. Some exclusions may apply. All right, sorry, I completely mucked up the dismount by asking more questions. Yeah, that's so, a uh, show. yes, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Buzz, and thank you, FC Dallas curious fan. We'll speak to you next week on another episode of Third Degree the Podcast. Make Buzz meet Palmer do call. Third Degree, the Third Degree Net Podcast. Third Degree, the Third Degree Net Podcast. Third Degree. Third degree, the third degree never care.